Hello, I'm John Cameron, and welcome to Musicology. I think I have a very privileged position in that I am 23 years old and have had five years in the business which have taught me an awful lot and I've absorbed an awful lot. So on the business side of things, I, I'm in the lucky position that I can make clear decisions at 23. Somebody told me Boy, everything she wants is everything she sees I guess I must have loved you Because I said you were the perfect girl for me, baby George Michael and Andrew Ridgely wanted to be the biggest band of the early 80s. Wham! achieved just that. It was an apprenticeship of sorts for George, the group's source of creative talent and immaculate singing ability. In a way, I think eventually I thought, you're making pop records three, four years on for the sake of, of saying uh, pop records are just as good as anything else I can write. And really, that's, there's no point. What's the point? I, I've not, I don't really feel the need to prove that to people anymore. I'm sure I will write pop records, but the records that I'm writing now um, I tend to be much more reflection on my real character as opposed to just craft. the training ground necessary for him to become the biggest star in the world, at least for as long as he wanted to. The head start on his career meant that he was even able to have a few hits in his solo discography before putting together his first album. believe that I would never have achieved what I'm, what I'm going for now, but I think it would take me longer without a foil. And I was no more using Andrew than he was using me. The pair of us went in, into it together, really not knowing this was going to happen, really not knowing how my career was going to, to move. And uh, having realised the situation, what well, I mean, I was not going to drop Andrew. I had no need to drop Andrew. Andrew served a purpose for me, I served a purpose for him, and we were still very good friends. He had the voice, he had the ability, he just needed faith. Careless Whisper featured on Wham's Make It Big album in 1984. But the single release would be credited to George Michael, despite it being one of few songs that Andrew Ridgely would have input on. I feel so unsure As I take your hand and lead you to the dance floor As the music dies The track's inception took place three years earlier, while George was on a bus. He proceeded to write the song in his head over a three-month period. He was 17 at the time. The demo would be one of a handful of songs that Ridgely and Michael would play to record companies in the pursuit of a record deal. I remember an A&R guy handing me back my tape of Careless Whisper. Threw it back across the desk and said, well, 
you've got quite a good voice, but go home and write a hit song. I managed to actually get my own back because about two years after Careless Whisper had come out, some years later, I saw him at a media party and I walked up to him in a group of people and said, do you remember me? And he said, no. <laughs> so I said, yeah, 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 do you remember? You must remember. I was about 17 and I came in and I gave you a cassette of, of Careless Whisper and you told me to go home and write a hit song. It wouldn't have a place on their first album, but the pair still had every intention of revamping Careless Whisper and bringing it to fruition. Eventually, that time came. Michael would work with legendary producer Jerry Wexler at the legendary Muscle Shoals Sound Studio to re-record the demo. Compared to the final version, this one is arguably incongruous with Wham's catalogue, in that it sounds like George Michael is being produced. not to say he wasn't in control, as by all accounts he was. Perhaps there's the bias of the classicality in the version the world came to know, but the Wexler version just doesn't maximise the song's full potential. George would dispense of that version and start from fresh. The result was a blockbuster. Careless Whisper would chart at number one all over the world at its initial release in 1984, extending through to the following year. It would chart again in 2017, shortly after George Michael's passing. Despite it being one of the first tracks Michael committed to, the song is a staple in his discography. Even though people see Careless Whisper as my first solo record, the truth is that Careless Whisper was written when Andrew and I were at school, and it was written for, you know, whatever we turned into. Yeah. But Different Corner was the first thing that I wrote as a solo artist. I'd say love was a magical flame I'd say love would keep us from pain Had I been by George. Lyrically, it more closely reflects the emotional sophistication that his ballads going forward would contain. So much so, he would perform it throughout his lifetime, changing the arrangement to give certain instruments more prominence. 
The song breaks away from what he described as the formulaic tracks. His record company wanted to include it on the soundtrack to Top Gun, so it wouldn't be thrown in with the carefree aesthetic of Wham. With George now emancipated from his four years as a duo, he was now free to establish himself as his own artist. In late 1985, he guested in Elton John's Wrap Her Up track and video, a somewhat predictable move given Elton's endorsements. But the next collaboration is where he would truly inaugurate himself as a worthy artist. While still in Wham, he was asked to write and produce an album for the legendary Aretha Franklin. He turned down the opportunity, daunted by the idea of directing one of his heroes. Aretha Franklin, I was, it was just a dream, a dream come true. And she'd actually asked me at 20 to write and produce something, at which point I'd actually chickened out and said I really couldn't do it. It was just too overwhelming for me. I'd, I'd only produced, I think at that point, waking up before you go there. The idea of sitting and telling Aretha what to do or what to do was not really, you know, but that's why I had someone else produce it and someone else write it. It was still out of fear. Like a warrior that fights and wins a battle, I know the taste of victory. Though I went through some nights consumed by the shadows, I was crippled emotionally. You had to go to Detroit. He did a duo. He came out to Detroit. When she arrived, she arrived with this huge, huge, covered in tinfoil thing of ribs. Big, big rack of, of lamb, you know. We had some of the best ribs in the country. And I said, I'm really sorry, Aretha, but I, I haven't eaten meat for many years. And she said, OK, OK. She can get through a rack of ribs like a machine. But the best bit was, at the end of each one, she would rip off the rib and throw it across the room into this bin. <laughs> and every time, but it was right the other side of the, room, the studio, that she could hit that bucket in the corner like that.
waiting for me would hit number one on various charts around the world. It was the perfect opportunity to take a proper step outside of Wham! on his own, even if it was as a feature with another artist. While it is now regarded as a classic, Michael's first true solo effort would vastly overshadow it. I Want Your Sex would be George Michael's first single from his first album, which at that point wasn't completed and wouldn't be released for another five months. The song was to originally begin with a simple drum beat, however a technical fault would ensure something slightly more interesting. For the initial tracking, a Lindrum machine and two synthesizers, a Juno and a Roland DX7 were utilised with MIDI. When George and engineer Chris Porter returned to the song hours later, there was a fault with the MIDI file and the rhythms program for the drum machine were instead played through the synthesizers. They used these strange pulsating sounds to add to the track's rhythmic introduction. divided into three parts. The main section is titled Rhythm 1, Lust, which would become the single edit played on radio until the controversy hit. I'll be perfectly honest, I was expecting the BBC to ban it, and I said no, just simply the word sex, I know the BBC's taboos about the word sex. I was expecting that. What I wasn't expecting was the IBA ban, which, which has made it a blanket ban. Basically no one gets to hear it within certain hours. Uh, you know, regardless of what radio station they listen to. And I think it's unfair because I think um, it's the first band of its kind in a long time and I think if I were not George Michael, then I would have no problem being played on those independent stations. And it's incredibly irritating knowing you have a, had a record out for a couple of weeks and that basically most people only know about it, they have not heard the record. Despite the uproar over the lyrics, it's worth mentioning that the first part is played entirely by Michael himself. That is until the second part, where he employed a seven-piece brass section. Rhythm 2, Brass and Love, builds upon the pre-existing composition with an array of new instruments. I feel kind of embarrassed about all the publicity because I think it's kind of, it makes people um, ready for something a lot raunchier and I didn't try and do something that was going to get banned. I, you know, I, I tried to get it real borderline. Interestingly, I Want Your Sex was originally intended for his longtime friend, 
occasional co-writer and eventual manager David Austin. Michael later felt that the message of monogamy would be blurred by the song's first verse, which at this point of writing was still meant for Austin. This is what prompted George to later write Rhythm 3 at last request. His way of emphasising a more individually focused attempt at swaying a potential partner. I think the song is um, really, in its own way, it's quite, it has a, a, a quite a moral stance to it. I mean, the whole um, hysteria at the moment about the word sex was something that I wanted to, um, I don't know, in my own way, I suppose it's making a statement about it by, by being so direct with it. The song is about sex. But, I mean, sex in a, in a, with a, a lustful approach, I suppose. Why has it been banned? It's been banned because they're saying, basically, that you're, you're saying be promiscuous, go out there and, and have lots of it with lots of different people. Well, that's, that's what they seem to think, isn't it? I mean, I, I think that it's fairly obvious to anybody who has read the lyrics or, or listened to the record properly. It's written from the point of view of someone in a relationship with one person. I think, really, that the, the fact that I, I tried to stress the idea of monogamy with the, with the 12-inch of the record and... Um, and Why, does that and the... Why does that smirk? Why does that smirk? You can't say 12 inch or 7 inch in relation to this record without people laughing. You can't, I don't no. understand it. It's myself. a classy audience as well, yeah. we got in, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. At this point in production, the project would be titled Kissing a Fool, after the track that, in its final configuration, would close out the album. While the potential interpretation is very much up to the listener with its adaptive lyrics, it is based on a relationship that George was in. His girlfriend couldn't handle who he was, or at least the aspect of fame. Michael was stricken with shock, not accounting his own success and how others might be affected by it. The cease of that relationship put him in the mindset that gave rise to songs like this, resigning himself to heartbreak. Victim of his own success, a reoccurring theme in his life following this era.
proud of it, mentioning the track in a multitude of interviews before the album's release, and rightly so. It's speculated that he sang the song in its entirety within just one take. Whether that's true or not, or if it was indeed compiled from a number of takes, is almost irrelevant to the level of technical ability in George's performance. He delivers the track with as much classicality as a performer in the swing era, and articulates as much emotion as few are capable. You must have been kissed. Of course, what did become the title track is also worth the price of admission, opening the album with a simple, sustained organ, playing Wham's freedom to elongate the track's running time. I mean, I was a little scared before I went into the studio um, to work on anything because I've had, I've had songs swimming around in my head for about two years that I knew I had to wait until the actual break came. What I tend to do is I demo, I used to do, I demo and then I get so carried away with the demo because I'd be really excited that I'd get a great performance, vocal performance and great feel on everything. But it would have been done so quickly that obviously it couldn't be a master and then you'd have to go in and recreate that. So I'd rather have the actual excitement come out of the mastering. In other words, the first should be the first, and the first and the last. I just keep the songs and the arrangements in my head, and I've got like about six now, and I've only put two of them down. And they are... Um, I'm, I'm very excited. There's no way it's not going to be uh, fine, you know. Well, I guess it would be nice If I could touch your body of the album, articulating the themes of lust, but also as George would describe, caution, mistrust, and broken hearts. Oh, when that love comes down, well, I son, well, it takes a strong man, baby, but I'm showing you the door, cause I gotta have faith. While the melodies and arrangements may have been present in his head, Michael would often write in the studio. As an amendment would have to be made to his vocal track, he had the ability to do so by adding or overdubbing single words, and in some cases, just a syllable. And another who tied me down to love a boy Before this river becomes an ocean Before you throw my heart back on the floor my foolish notion Well, I need someone to hold me But I'll wait for something more Yes, I gotta have faith mm, I gotta have faith 
Faith was never actually intended as a single when I first recorded it, and then I listened to it more and more. In fact, originally it was only two minutes long. There were, originally there was no guitar solo, there was no real guitar sound on it or anything. And everyone said, it's great, it's great, but it's too short, you know. And everyone kept saying that I love Faith, I love Faith. So I thought, well, maybe I should put it out as a single. When it came to that, I started thinking two-minute-long single is a bit, you know. So, uh, so I went in and extended it. But it was, it was originally never intended as a single. It was just going to be like a, uh, a small track on the album, a really short track. With the enthusiasm of those who were fortunate enough to hear Faith in production, guitars and an instrumental bridge would later be added to extend the track time for radio. George Michael wrote Faith standing in front of the microphone he was presently recording into. It went on to become the most successful single of 1988. Yes, I gotta have faith. Mm, I gotta have faith. While Faith does come across to many as a seminal, light-hearted pop album, it does talk about some heavy-handed issues. Another song originally intended for David Austin, with the working title, Bet You Don't Like It, would be one of those with more socially conscious lyrics. September of 1986, George and David came up with only the song's chorus, which would establish the song's theme of what Mike would reveal as about a battered wife, based on someone they both knew. This would enable them to build around the chorus, constructing a more complex narrative titled Look at Your Hands. to get out of their toxic relationship. The frustration of someone having to witness their friend resign their lives to such abuse within a danceable pop music backing is a strange juxtaposition, but it doesn't prevent the enjoyment from the listener or its artist. George Michael was one of the few pop artists that played his own instruments. Not all of them, but he was proficient enough that he wouldn't have to wait for the organisation of a studio musician to come in, unless something was really beyond his technical ability. Sweet little 
funk records are me doing what I want to do from the point of view of I spend an awful lot of my time listening to modern black music and dancing in clubs and stuff like that. So to me that's my reflection of my life at the moment, or part of my life at the moment. How much do I have to say? What more do you have to see? What will it take to make you love me? perfect example of his musicianship and the general arrangement of faith. Beginning with a pulsating mechanized drum track and peppered vocal samples before hit with an in-your-face bass line, simple and repetitive but never tiresome. During a number of promotional interviews for the album, it was noted that George was listening to Janet Jackson's Control Remix album with productions by Jam and Lewis and Shep Pettibone. Most of the singles from Faith would feature their instrumental counterparts as the B-side, but there were a couple of inspired exceptions. elongating the production through a series of synthesized extensions. There are some alterations to the vocal mix as well, making the lead stand out more prominently. from the album, the single would not hit number one. This could possibly be due to oversaturation, with the Faith single having been released only two and a half weeks earlier. The next would be almost a full two months away. One of the reasons for making sure the more funk orientated stuff went on this album was because I knew that if I had just made an album of ballads or of say more mature stuff, if I'd done that and gone the whole hog and tried to show everybody how I was a mature artist and everything, I think a lot of the, the people of my own age and a bit younger would have actually ignored some of the stuff on the album which they'll now get to hear and really like. There are certain things on the album which I know are, would have been pushed aside were they part of a more M.O.R. type sounding album but because they are black influenced they fit very nicely in an album which does have some fun stuff on it and I know that more people that should hear them will hear them and, and accept them. 
the second song on the album, and the sixth number one single garnered from it, Father Figure permeates a seductive atmosphere with its unconventional composition, but articulates vulnerability through its bare lyrics. That's all I want The instrumental would have its beginnings as just a rhythm track, with a snare drum sound that would later go unused, where the clicks now thrive. result, the final product is a rather unique one, described by Michael at the time as the most original sounding song on the album. sung by just about anyone else, the interpretations of their meaning would have perhaps had a more sinister undertone. But this is George Michael, not the out and proud George Michael, but George Michael, the non-threatening fantasy that every girl wanted to be held by. I will be your It's not that he gets away with saying anything creepy or salacious, he's just playing his character and writing his own lines for it. setting a sense of security as well as authority. He strategically reverts to his powerhouse vocals only to emphasize the dormant passion at the peaks of the song. Till the end of 
Even though Wham may have just been a flash-in-the-pan pop duo to most, he had established himself as a writer of timeless ballads. One More Try would be yet another number one single generated from the album and a staple of Michael's catalogue. special thing on the album, I think it's probably the thing that will be the most remembered thing off of it, which is a ballad called One More Try, which is the best vocal performance I've ever done without any doubt. It was where I was on the way into the relationship I'm in now. It was that point where you've been really had your guts ripped out by someone and you can just see something, you can just see, you get that deja vu feeling when you're just about to make a real commitment and decide to go for it. And you flash on the past. And at the time, I wasn't just flashing on the past, I was still choking on the past, you know. It's like, I just wasn't sure if I was ready to do it again. He described it at the time as the best thing he'd ever written up to that point with the intent of replacing the earlier ballads in the public's mind. Whether that was achieved or not is debatable, but it certainly is a fan favourite, having its feature on every tour he did. There are some records on the new album that have been written over the last two years, but for instance, there's a track on the album called One More Try, which is my favourite track on the album, which was recorded and finished within eight hours, and that was written as it was recorded, you know, so sometimes I can write something very deliberately and slowly and it will be successful and sometimes I can write something that, that really just comes and 
and like I, before I know it, I've finished it, and it can be, you know, some of my best work. The song is an excellent example of his inconsistent creative process. Never deviating in quality, but a somewhat unreliable output. The songs that came so naturally in a short time frame seem to be the most memorable. While it replaced Michael's earlier Kissing a Fool as his personal opus of the album as production continued, it stands within the quality of the epic three songs preceding it in the final configuration. So when you say that you need me, that you never leave me, I know you're wrong, you're not that strong, let me go. And There's one track on the album which is actually directly about the, the way uh, our country is leaning towards American values in terms of welfare and in terms of the individual and the individual's responsibility. It's just a comment on how vicious it is. You know, the, the way that's happening is very wrong, I think, and it scares me a lot because I think it's all very well to, to try and apply American values to a country in our state, but I think it's the wrong thing to do because it leaves such a huge number of people who can't fend for themselves uh, with no, no choice, you know. Hand to Mouth was later described by George as him trying to show off as a lyricist. That might have been the case in his reflection, but at the time, it was an impassioned warning of what he had been observing in the contrasts of the United States and Britain or lack thereof. are a series of short stories of those fallen victim to their impoverished lives. The chorus is a defeated acknowledgement that a change in those circumstances is unlikely, but the narrator clings to any last shred of hope.
Vocals are the song's main attraction, with their feature over another simple, repetitive instrumental, all of which was played by George, with the exception of the finishing guitar. Well, it's very difficult for me because I write a lot in the studio, and so it's very difficult to keep people hanging around for ages and ages. I just tend to find that, especially if you're going for a particular feel on a record, more often than not, if you can actually play it yourself, if it's a very simple structure, if you're going for a particular feel, you feel you can often dilute it when you use session guides. Um, and in, in the case of hand to mouth, well, I played everything on that, but obviously I can't play the acoustic guitar, classically guitar, well enough to play that stuff, so I've got someone in at the end. But I tend to bring session musicians in only when I have to. And if I can play it myself, I do. Hand to Mouth was a development of sorts from a different song Michael wrote called Gun Control, which was inspired by a series of freeway road rage shooting incidents in mid-1987 Los Angeles. Songs about those kinds of non-sexual social issues were clearly in his thoughts, even if they weren't represented to that extent on the final album's configuration. Uh, the crazy man dance thing. I'm not, I'm not totally sure it will go on the album yet. Yeah, it's kind of the most, I think it's probably the most kind of dark thing we've done. Well, I'm still George Michael isn't an artist that would be described as prolific, and that goes for his released and unreleased catalogue. There was, however, some material worked on during the Faith sessions that wouldn't make the final cut, the most significant of which is mistakenly attributed to an unreleased album concept years later. Crazy Man Dance is that song. It came very close to making the final configuration, but with the political nature of hand to mouth, perhaps its inclusion would have changed the vast narratives of the album, taking it to a more moralistic tone. The last time I was in New York, I noticed, because I haven't, I don't go there very often, I only go when I have to really, and it just dawned on me what a huge number of homeless and really loony people there are in New York. Just everywhere you look, it was just became suddenly apparent that everywhere you look there was another person with something really strange about them, you know? It just uh, made me think about how New York, how many people must come to New York, and they come normal, you know, they arrive normal. It was just basically about the idea of people who come there thinking that they're going to make something out of themselves and are gradually driven in, into the ground, you know. didn't make faith, a snippet of the introduction would be included as part of a short-lived Diet Coke commercial in 1989. And in what appears to be part of a depressing trend, the ad also introduces music from Crazy Man Dance, a song from his next album, which isn't due out till fall. Applying a song inspired by the homeless problem utilised in 30 seconds of capitalism. 
that project wouldn't see fruition, but the song would get a release as a B-side in 1992. Continuing the channel of observations that was influencing his writing, Monkey is the story of a pleading partner frustrated by the hold drugs have on their loved one. Some snare. I need some more of that bass. Despite the promises of kicking the habit, okay, a bit more on the guitars, yeah? represented by the metaphor of a monkey, the perspective's relentless attempts to help the person are fruitless. being regarded as an unlikely contender, it would eventually be released as Faith's sixth single. Although George wasn't entirely satisfied with the album version, which is why he called on hitmakers Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. While the lead vocal is the same as what appears on the album, George recorded additional overdubs to up the energy throughout. It's perhaps most recognisable on the verses, where a much lower vocal accompanies the main. would later be regarded by Michael as one of the worst songs on Faith, along with Look At Your Hands. But this revamped version would still hit number one in the United States and Canada, as well as attaining significant chart placement around the rest of the world. I suppose what I really want is to be able to do what I want creatively, succeed and be able to progress without screwing the rest of my life up. That's the way I see it, really. Because I don't really... I can't really relate to um, the pressures. I mean, I know the pressure that's going to come with the type of music that I'm going to release because I don't think my music has reached anything like its peak. Faith did exactly what George Michael wanted it to do, make him the biggest star in the world. 
It received Album of the Year at the 1988 Grammy Awards, contentiously three American Music Awards that were traditionally given to black artists, and six of its seven singles would hit number one on various charts around the world. That speculated 1989 album wouldn't see any release. By all accounts, it's doubtful if it was actually properly conceived. Listen Without Prejudice Volume 1 would follow a resistance to the achievements of the previous three years. No George Michael featured music videos, very few interviews, and even fewer television performances. This period of his life represented his genius, equally as a performer and a marketer. He knew his best side. He knew what the audience wanted. He knew what he wanted and achieved it. Thank you for listening to John Cameron's Musicology. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider rating and reviewing on iTunes or sharing on social media.